1: In the midst of me spending five out of six weeks out of the office and studio, there's been a lot happening. My evenings have been spent working on the Melgar case, while my days have been spent scouring the country to try to get to the bottom of the West Memphis 3 case. I've spoken to new witnesses and brought in a whole new slew of experts. I know that a lot of you are constantly asking me when I'll be returning to that case. All I can tell you right now is, soon, soon. There's a very good reason that I've had to work quietly for the last few months on the case, and I promise that reason will be made abundantly clear in the coming months. For now, all I can say is this. I've never been more confident that we will finally have a concrete answer to the 26-year-old question, who killed Stevie, Michael, and Christopher? I'm not there yet, but I've made it over a lot of hurdles and only a few stand in the way between us and the finish line. At the same time as I'm working on investigating two cases at once, the Anand Sayed case has been flipped on its head repeatedly over the last few weeks. The highest court in Maryland has overturned the lower court's ruling reinstating Anand's conviction. The four-part HBO docu-series, The Case Against Anand Syed, has aired and revealed some pretty startling discoveries. And lastly, we finally received the results of the DNA test from the evidence collected from the crime scene where Hay's body was found. With all of this happening at the same time, I'm going to break today's episode up into two segments. An update and analysis on all things related to Anand's case, and then the conclusion of Billy Belk's testimony in the Melgar case. First up, what's going on with Anand? I think that we've covered the latest ruling in Adnan's case pretty thoroughly. Colin Miller did a fantastic job of explaining it in last week's follow-up. Essentially, the court did not contest the judge's ruling that Gutierrez was ineffective in her failure to raise the issues with the cell phone data at trial. Nor did they contest the findings that that failure was prejudicial. The conviction was reinstated because Adnan's post-conviction attorney failed to raise the issue in his initial brief. Basically, the ruling was overturned on a technicality. According to Colin, this ruling has opened the door for two options. Either Adnan can file an ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel claim, an argument that Colin believes is almost a guaranteed winner, or present new evidence that proves Adnan's actual innocence. Which leads me to last week's revelation of the results of new DNA testing. In 2014, Innocence Project attorney Deidre Enright appeared on Serial and suggested some ways to gain access to the evidence in Adnan's case for DNA testing. And since then, everyone has been waiting with bated breath for this testing to be done. The believers in Adnan's innocence have been crying out, when is this going to happen? While those that think he's guilty have been saying that he's not testing the evidence because it will prove that he actually killed Hay. But here's the reality of the situation not has never had the ability to test the DNA. No one who's been convicted of a crime does. In order to get DNA testing done, the defense would have to file a motion to a judge requesting the right to test the evidence. That's why Deidre was listing some possible scenarios that could open that door. You have to have a legitimate reason to request the testing, and there's no guarantee that a judge will allow it. The prosecution, on the other hand, can test whatever evidence whenever they want to. And that's what happened in this case. To begin with, let's look at the reasons why Adnan's attorney, Justin Brown, hasn't requested the testing. He did a really good job of explaining this in Episode 4 of the docuseries. Number one, Adnan was already in the middle of a successful appeal. Up until four weeks ago, it seemed as though he had a winning argument. His conviction was thrown out, and that decision was upheld during the first appeal. In post-conviction work, it's all about strategy. Justin had to keep an ace in the hole, so to speak. Meaning, he had to have a plan for where to go next if the current argument didn't work. And remember, at the time, it seemed like it was working. But Justin went into a lot more depth on the issue during the series. He explained that even if Adnan is innocent, there was still a risk in testing the DNA. Adnan and Hay dated for a long time, and even after they broke up, they remained friends. He has been in her car and possibly even had sex in her car on multiple occasions. Because of that, it would be no surprise if his DNA was discovered on anything that had been in her car. He even had direct contact with Hay on the day that she went missing when he asked her for a ride. So the fear was that if his DNA was discovered on anything, even if it was present from weeks earlier, Adnan's chances of post-conviction relief would be effectively over which is likely the exact reason why the Attorney General decided to go ahead and test 12 items of evidence for DNA. In the midst of this four-year PR nightmare, if Adnan's DNA could be found on the crime scene, the masses would be quieted. But unfortunately for the state, that's not how things shook out. In the fall of 2018, the state sent 12 items to the lab for DNA testing. Scraping from Hay's left-hand fingernail, Scraping from her right fingernail A swab from the brandy bottle cap found near her body As well as a swab from the mouth of that same bottle A swab from Hay's white metal necklace And one from her yellow metal necklace They also tested three blood samples from the back of a shirt Which I believe is the shirt that was found in her trunk They tested a condom wrapper that was found out by the road Over 127 feet away from her body As well as known blood samples from Hay, Jay, and Adnan for comparison And lastly, they tested two lengths of what the report refers to as wire, but the initial police report lists as rope. The rope slash wires were found on the ground just inches away from Hayes' body. For the most part, the DNA results weren't all that significant. There was no DNA found on the swabs from the mouth of the brandy bottle or either of the necklaces. On the right fingernail scraping, we find Hayes' DNA, but on the left scraping, we find what reads to me like a mixture of DNA. There was a major and a minor contributor. Hay was the major contributor, and the minor contributor was listed as indeterminate. Unfortunately, the report that I read doesn't get into great detail on this finding, so I don't know exactly what indeterminate means. Finding someone's DNA under Hay's fingernail that does not belong to her is a huge find. But sadly, it doesn't sound like there's enough of a profile there to match it to anyone. Usually, in these cases, there's enough information to rule someone out, but not enough to rule anyone in. All three blood samples taken from the back of Hayes' shirt matched Hayes' profile, and we have inconclusive results from the swabs taken from the bottle cap, the condom wrapper, and from the longer wire. But we may very well have hit pay dirt on the shorter wire. Here we have a full profile, and it's not Hayes adnons or jays and this wire was found less than a foot away from hay's body it's not hard to imagine that hay's body was transported in something not just carried for anyone who drove by to see she very well could have been wrapped up in a tarp or a blanket and these wires could have been used to tie whatever was covering her closed It's long been my theory that Hay's body was rolled up in either a tarp or a blanket and that she was rolled out into the hole where she was buried. I say this because of her position in the hole. Hay was discovered on her side, with her right arm bent in front of her chest and her left arm bent behind her back. I can't imagine any scenario where someone would place a body into a hole positioned like that. Gravity would tend to leave both arms in front of her in the position that she was found in. However, if she was rolled out of a tarp into the hole her arms would end up in the exact position where she was ultimately discovered. Working off that theory, if I'm right about this, it also tells us something about when Hay was buried. Considering the lividity evidence, we know that there is simply no way that Hay was buried anywhere near the 7 o'clock hour as Jay has stated. It's just not possible. She had full frontal fixed lividity and she was found on her side. But she also has those notorious double diamond pattern pressure marks on her shoulders and there was nothing found in the burial site or in her car that could have made those marks. And so if Hay was killed at around 3 p.m., at the very earliest she could have been moved to Leakin Park and buried at around 11 p.m. Except, if I'm right about her arms being contorted due to her being rolled out of some kind of covering, then it had to be even later. About the same time that lividity fixes in a body, rigor mortis also becomes noticeable. At about the 12-hour mark, the body is becoming stiff, meaning a dead body's arms wouldn't flop around if they're being rolled into a hole. From 12 to 24 hours, the bod is rigidly stiff and not pliable at all. And then after 24 hours, the process of rigor breaking down begins. And that process takes another 12 hours or so before the body becomes flexible again, meaning that if Hay was killed at, say, 3 p.m. on Wednesday... By the time the lividity and pressure marks fixed, her body would have been stiff from rigor mortis until around 11 p.m. on Thursday night, which would have been a terrible time to bury a body. Remember, school was closed on Thursday and Friday because of a nasty ice storm, which then takes us all the way to Saturday, which in my opinion is the most likely time that Hayes' body was moved to Lincoln Park and buried. I don't mean to sound disrespectful or gross here, but when we factor in the lividity and the rigor evidence, I don't think there's any way that hay was buried on Wednesday night. And Thursday and Friday, we have the ice storm, and by Saturday, at that point, the body would begin to smell, and something would have to be done with it by then. Now, all this is based on my theory of how hay was rolled into the hole, and I'll be the first to admit that it's not a provable theory. But I also don't think it's a bad theory. It's most definitely supported by the evidence as a hypothesis that I can't rule out. And I can tell you one thing, it's most definitely a far better theory than Hay was prettled up in a car for four hours and then buried in Lincoln Park at 7 p.m. That theory is provably false. So what about that piece of wire that was found eight inches away from Hay's body? What do we know about that? We know that there was a full DNA profile found on the wire and it wasn't Hayes at or Jay's. We also know that the DNA found on that wire, 127 feet from the road and right next to the body, came from a female. Now maybe you believe that one person hauled Hay's body back into the woods and buried her. I personally do not. I think that whoever killed Hay had help covering their tracks. So I guess if I was investigating this case, I would start my search from here with someone who might have a female in his life that loves him so much that they would help him get away with murder. In reality, there are a few steps that can be taken with this DNA profile. If I understand correctly, the profile has already been run through CODIS and there were no hits, which means that whoever's DNA that is, isn't in the system. Now, there are most definitely a couple of people out there who I would love to compare this profile to, but that would require a warrant, and I suspect that Baltimore PD isn't real excited about finding out who was actually handling that wire. However, there is another option. I'm personally hoping and praying that this profile can be run through Jedmatch. If you're not familiar with this new investigative method, it's how the Golden State Killer was finally brought to justice after decades of getting away with murder. It's much more complicated than the way I'm about to explain it, but here are the nuts and bolts. A very popular trend lately is people submitting their DNA to websites that track their ancestry. When you send in your sample, the sites will match you with other blood relatives that have done the same. It's a whole new database that the FBI is now tapping into. Basically, this profile could be uploaded to GEDmatch, and the database would give us a list of people who are related to whoever the DNA on the wire belongs to you would then investigate those people and see if they have any blood relatives that may have a connection to the case. Let me give you a hypothetical. I'm going to use someone that I know has zero involvement in Hayes' murder so that it doesn't look like I'm pointing any fingers at anyone. Let's say the female profile was uploaded to GEDmatch and we got a list of blood relatives, including a first cousin. From there, we would investigate this person to see if any of their cousins may have some connection to the crime. We found out that this person that we got the hit from only has four first cousins, and three of them were, say, living in Colorado at the time. And the fourth cousin is Adnan and Hay's friend, Krista. And again, I'm using Krista because I know that she has nothing to do with this. I don't want to read on Reddit tomorrow that I'm accusing Krista of murdering Hay. So anyway, these results would suggest that it's most likely Krista's DNA on the wire, so the next step would be to obtain Krista's DNA to compare to the profile that was found. Essentially, what GEDmatch does is narrow down your suspect pool. Instead of having a random, unknown profile, we now have the ability to determine at least who might be related to the person who left their DNA behind on a crime scene. Hopefully, this will be the next step for the official investigators. Lastly, before we move back into the Melgar case, I want to quickly summarize what we learned from the HBO docu-series, The Case Against Adnan Syed. I spoke at length about the final episode in this week's follow-up, so if you're interested in what I have to say and haven't listened yet, I'd recommend going to do so. Because in the follow-up, I talked a lot about my personal thoughts on the series itself, but today I want to break down what we actually learned about the case. So let's first talk about Jay's story. At this point, if we weren't sure already we can completely discard Jay's testimony about what happened on January 13th, 1999. I'm not going to rehash all of the issues that we already knew. You can go back to season one for that info if you want to. But from the docuseries, we now know that his story is absolutely impossible. Christy, or not her real name Kathy, was not home on the night that Hay went missing. She was in class until after 9pm. Both Jay and Jen's stories about the events of that night, and how those events connected to a non-cell records, hinge heavily on Christy being home throughout the evening. If Christy was in class, then Jay's story can't be true. And Jen is either lying or everything that she remembers happening happened on a different night. Which seems unlikely, but I honestly suspect it's probably a combination of those two things. Speaking of Jen and Christy, one huge detail that seemed to get kind of glossed over in the series was the fact that Christie says that on the night the police contacted Jen, they walked right up to the car and asked for Jen by name. This is in direct conflict with the police version of events, and it's a big deal. According to the official record, the cops saw a phone number on Anand's records, traced the number back to the Pusateri house, and when they arrived, somehow they were told that it was Jen who was being called by that number. Then Jen talks to the police, gives them her story, the next day with a lawyer present, and that leads the police to contact Jay. The cops claim that they never spoke to Jay prior to Jen directing them to do so. Now, we already know that Jay's boss had told the defense investigator that Jay had missed work on two or three occasions prior to his first official contact with police, but now we can add to that this first encounter with Jen. There was no way for Ritz and McGillivary to know that it was Jen who was being called by that number, unless they had already talked to Jay. Remember, Anand wasn't friends with Jen. Jay was. And if they hadn't talked to Jay, at that point the assumption would be that it was non who was making the calls. So the fact that they directly approach Jen and ask her, according to Christy, are you Jen Pusateri, further drives home the point that the police were working on Jay long before they claimed to have first spoken to him. My own personal theory is that Jen does actually believe that Jay was with Adnan and went with him when he buried her. I think, and again, this is just a theory, that after Jen's first contact with police, remember, she didn't talk to them that night. She said she was busy and she went to go see Jay. I think that it was during that meeting that Jay told Jen a version of his story. The version that he had already been working on with the police. It was then that he told her what to say to Ritz and McGillivary, likely with a promise from them that she wouldn’t be charged. But based on what I saw from Jen during the Docu series, I think that she actually believes that Adnan did it, as I’m sure Jay did at that point. But Jen had to be part of the story because her number was in the call records several times during key moments of the narrative. The police needed Jen to corroborate Jay’s story with the phone records, and Jen was willing to help her friend Jay by saying that she witnessed things happening. The things that Jay told her did happen because again, we know now that the series of events that she described were impossible and they never did line up with Jay's versions of events anyway. And let's not forget that Jay also told his ex-girlfriend over the phone during the series that he made up the story because he got caught with a bunch of weed. Now, let's talk about Hay's car for a minute. Unfortunately, the grass expert wasn't able to come to any definitive conclusions regarding the condition of the foliage under the car. He did, however, note something that Susan Simpson caught a few years ago. Susan had noticed that there was what appeared to be green grass in the wheel wells of the car. Which, of course, seems unlikely, considering the fact that the car had supposedly been sitting in that position for six weeks. Just think about how long grass stays green after you mow it and it's laying on your driveway. A day or two and it turns brown. But the Turfologist, or Turfiologists, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, went a little further than that. Beyond just the color of the grass in the wheel wells, the tires of Hayes' car are covered in mud and still green grass and weeds. But none of the other cars around have grass on their tires. The point that he makes is that given six weeks of rain, snow, and ice storms, it seems highly unlikely that the debris wouldn't have washed away by the time the car was found. The implication, of course, being that it's more than likely that the car was moved into that position very recently, and it had not been sitting there for a month and a half. And as compelling as that is, I actually found the longtime resident statement even more powerful. According to her, there is no way that a strange car could have sat in that space for six weeks without her or some of her friends calling the police. And now, let's talk about Don. We learned a little bit more about Don in this series. The first and most startling revelation was the fact that he was pursuing Hay's friend Debbie romantically while Hay was still missing. I don't know exactly what to say about that, but yeah... In the final moments of the episode, we hear from the former co-worker of Don's, S.H. This is the gentleman that I was speaking with a few weeks ago after he posted on Reddit. In the show, we hear him describe Don as having scratches on his hands and arms at work when he was telling him about Hay missing during a smoke break. If that's true, then this is another gut punch. Weeks had passed before the police ever actually met with Don in person, had they spoken to him directly in the days following Hay's disappearance, scratches all over his hands and arms, would most definitely have made him a prime suspect. Now, I'm not saying that Don killed Hay, but what I am saying is, we would have a lot less unanswered questions about Don had he been thoroughly investigated to begin with. And this might have been the trigger to make that happen. But unfortunately, all we have now is a 20-year-old story and no way to corroborate it. Lastly, we learned a little bit more about Mr. S, Alonzo Sellers. And to be honest, I still don't know what to make of him. It really doesn't make sense to me that he was involved in Hayes' murder. Her body had been concealed successfully for 28 days. There's just no explanation that I can think of for him to intentionally draw the police's attention to the body that he had worked so hard to hide. And let's face it, after seeing the location where she was buried and how well the body was concealed, it's very likely that her body may have never been found, or at least it would have been a long time before it was found. So why would he intentionally point the police to the direction of the evidence that could be used to build a case against him if he was the killer? So I don't think that Mr. S killed Hay but the investigators did make a connection between Hay and Sellers through the double diamond pressure marks on her shoulders. It's been suggested over the years that the source of the marks may have been a particular type of concrete tool called a shoe. In the show, it was noted that Sellers had spent many years working in concrete, although in my opinion, that was quite a leap. To begin with, I don't think that the marks were caused by concrete shoes. Number one, these would have had to have been huge concrete shoes, much bigger than any ones that I've seen and the patterns that were on Hay's shoulders have a distinct dot right in the center of them that doesn't exist on the tools, at least not from what I can see in online photos of them. At the end of the day, I don't believe that Alonzo Sellers just happened to stumble into Hayes' body. I don't think that he killed her, but I do believe there has to be more to his story. Her body was just too well concealed, and it makes zero sense for him to be in that part of the woods at that time anyway. Something doesn't add up. non story is still developing, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it in next week's follow-up. But for now, after a short break for the ads, we're going to close out today's show with the second half of Billy Belk's testimony.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at
1: ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW, void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: We left off last week with former HBD homicide detective Billy Belk dropping some truth bombs on the Sandy Melgar jury. Not only has Belk been ripping Carozal's investigation to shreds from the stand, but he's also been presenting some key evidence that was missed or ignored the first time around. So let's pick back up where we left off. We jump back in with Belk giving his opinion of the ransacking of the Melgars' home. All of the original investigators, as well as Rossi, determined that the scene was staged by Sandy, because home invaders pull drawers all the way out and dump their contents onto the floor. Belk, however, doesn't agree. He testifies that he has worked on scenes like that, but in most cases, this is done by juvenile vandals, and not what he calls organized offenders but he does acknowledge that he has seen homicide scenes where the drawers were dumped out. And that's the point he's trying to make, and I'll use my words. It's ignorant to think that all murders and home invaders behave in the exact same way. Every scene and every offender is different. The fact that the drawers were open but not dumped out in no way implicates or exonerates Sandra Melgar in this murder. It's non-evidence. The amount of times that Billy Belk took investigative steps that the actual detectives never bothered to is staggering. Here's another example. Remember the candle that was found still burning on Jim's nightstand when Carpenter was taking crime scene photos? Belk saw it and it got his attention. His first impression was that the candle couldn't still be burning 18 hours after it was lit. So he had Mac get him the exact same candle from the store and he lit it and he let it burn for 24 hours. And it would have been nice if Carazal thought to do the same thing. But as we've said before, he was never looking for evidence of the truth. He was only looking for evidence that could convict Sandy. Next, Mac is asking Belk if he ever investigated home invasion scenes where the burglars gathered up items to take but ended up leaving them behind. And Barnett loses her mind. She objects to Belk saying anything about the past cases that he's worked because they're not relevant, she says, which results in a heated bench conference. Mac tries again and she interrupts again. She does not want Belk to say what she knows he's going to say. Although, he does eventually squeeze it in. From the transcript, Mac, what are some reasons based on your experience why a thief would get out the door and not take his booty with him? Belk, there's been experiences where the sure fact that a murder occurred and Barnett objects before he can finish the sentence. Think about that for a second. It makes absolute perfect sense for a home invader to abort a burglary if an unexpected murder occurs. It's actually not uncommon at all. And Belk himself has worked cases just like that. So what would that mean for Sandy's level of criminal sophistication? If she staged the scene to make it look like a burglary was in progress, but then aborted after the murder? And it's also very telling that Barnett is fighting tooth and nail to stop Belk from sharing his personal experiences on the topic. It's almost like she knows what he's going to say. Even after the trial, she still argues the fact that items left behind is an indicator of staging. Knowing full well that this is exactly what you would expect if murder wasn't the intention, but it happened anyway. You would expect the home invaders to forget what they came to steal and just get the hell out of there. (laughs) Cross examination begins with Barnett asking Belk about Herman Melgar's testimony. She starts out by pointing out that in Herman's police statement, he said that Sandy's arms were bound with the purple belt and her legs with the multicolored scarf. But when he testified at trial, he said the exact opposite. Belk agrees, and then we move on to a bizarre, hostile exchange. Barnett is asking Belk if Herman told police that the chair barricading the closet door was, quote, askew. Belk says no. She has him read the transcript, and then he still says no, and Barnett gets pissed. Herman actually said that the chair was at an angle under the knob. She wants Belk to say that that could mean that it was sideways. He says he disagrees, repeatedly, and she is berating him, telling him that she's not asking him for his opinion. Even though she asked for his opinion. Like I said, it's bizarre. What's really interesting about this cross-examination is that Barnett chose not to question Herman Melgar at all when he was on the stand. She could have asked him all of these questions directly, but instead she chose not to cross-examine him, and then she waits and tries to get Belk to impeach his testimony. In the next segment, she goes on and on about how Herman surely didn't really examine the knots to see if Sandy was faking, and surely he didn't look really closely at the chair blocking the door. It's nuts. These are all questions that should have been asked of Herman. He's the one that would know the answers, not Belk. For all of you attorneys out there, please reach out and let me know if you've ever seen anything like this before. It seems so strange to me. She let Herman's testimony stand unchallenged and then attacks it the next day through someone else's testimony. I know I haven't read a ton of transcripts, but I've never seen anything like that before. Next, Barnett moves on to Maria's testimony, and then on to the garage door. She's basically using this as an opportunity for her herself to testify before the jury. Mac keeps objecting because you're not allowed to do that, but the jury is still hearing her say that she doesn't believe Sandy's story, that Sandy wasn't the one who opened the garage door. Essentially, she's saying Sandy's the one who opened the door after Jim was murdered to make it look like someone could have gotten in that way. And then she moves into Sandy's statement. Are you detecting a theme here? Belk is a homicide investigator, and he spent over two years investigating the evidence in this case. And so far, all Barnett wants to do is have him talk about what other people said. I don't have time to read this cross-examination to you word for word, but it is worth a read if you have time. The testimony is posted on our website. Barnett is absolutely hostile with Belk. It's jarring how harshly she speaks to him. At this point in the transcript, she's asking him if Sandy changed her story about the times in her interview. Belk is trying to say that the times changed, but Sandy was saying that she was just guessing and she wasn't looking at a clock. But Barnett isn't having it. From the transcript, Belk. It's a change in time, but she also clarified that time. Barnett. Did I ask you that, sir? There are pages of the transcript just like that. Like I said, it's hostile. Then we have about five pages of transcript of Barnett trying to get Belk to say that Sandy's face was pointing away from the door when she was tied up in the closet. Belk, of course, doesn't know which way her face was facing because there's no way to know. Sandy said at one point that she was facing the shoe rack. And Belk is simply stating that that doesn't mean that she never, over the course of 15 hours, turned her head the other direction. Barnett tries every method possible to get him to say that she couldn't or wouldn't turn her head because she has joint pain and lupus. She never gets there, but her point is that Sandy mentions the chair blocking the door. Her argument is that she couldn't see the chair even under the door because she didn't turn her head, which of course is a useless argument because Sandy never says that the chair was barricading the door. She says there was a chair in the way, and when asked how the chair was positioned, she says that she doesn't know. The reality is it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that there was a chair in front of the door Herman is talking to her as he's moving the chair. He's disabled, so he's struggling with the chair. The door opens out and the chair is in the way even after he moves it out from under the knob. And lastly, when Sandy gets out of the closet, the chair that is usually kept inside the closet is now outside the closet, next to the door. In any case, the conversation does result in a kind of amusing objection. Barnett actually objects to one of Belk's answers while she's questioning him. He's still saying, pages later, that he doesn't know if Sandy turned her head in the entire 15 hours that she was in the closet. Barnett points out that Sandy said she couldn't move in her interview, and Belk says that he can't fault her for not clarifying during her interview, and then he adds, quote, I fault the detectives for not fully clarifying. And that's where Barnett cuts him off and objects to stop him from finishing his sentence. In the next segment, Barnett is basically comparing Belk's credentials to Celestina Rossi's. She's asking him very specific questions about how many classes and certifications he has. Specifically, she's pointing out that he hasn't attended as many classes as Rossi, which is true. She has a stack of certifications in a resume, whereas Belk was training during his 32 years on the force, mostly in-house and on the job, aside from his criminal justice degree and his law degree. This is another strange portion of the testimony. She goes on to literally list every single organization that Rossi belongs to and ask Belk if he is, for example, a board member or a president of the Association of Crime Scene Reconstruction. And I have to say, it's funny for me reading this section, and I don't in any way mean to demean Rossi for accomplishments, but for any of you listening that are fellow firefighters out there, you know why this is funny. In the fire service, we have a phrase, would you rather be certified or qualified? because there are tons of classes that you can pay money to, sit down, watch somebody click through a PowerPoint, and get a certificate, a piece of paper. But it doesn't really teach you or qualify you to do anything, nothing practical anyway. And every firehouse in the country has at least one guy who has attended every single class and conference available to obtain as many certifications as possible, but has no idea how to actually fight a fire. In my department, we had one guy who had so many certifications that he couldn't fit them all into a three ring binder. He had two of them that went along with his resume. But I swear to God, in 15 years working with him, I never once saw him inside of a burning building. He spent so much time going to seminars that he didn't have any time left to actually fight fire. Anyway, this particular section just reminded me of that. And that's what I'm imagining is going through Belk's head as Barnett presented him with Rossi's CV. He's sitting there as a very decorated and successful 32-year cop homicide detective basically being told how much better Rossi is than him because of all of her classes and because of how many boards and committees she sits on. Barnett later uses Belk's honesty to score what I think is a pretty strong blow. She asked him if he is testifying that it is impossible for Sandy Melgar to have committed this murder. And he says no, that it's not impossible. She asks again, quote, so it's certainly possible that she committed that crime. Belk responds, certainly. It's an answer that's kind of tough to read because we know that it's not his opinion that Sandy did commit the crime. But it's also refreshing to see a law enforcement officer answering a question honestly, even when it conflicts with his opinion. We haven't seen a whole lot of that in this trial. And Belk can't honestly say that he knows with 100% surety that it's impossible for Sandy to have done this. But the question asked wasn't, is there any evidence that she actually did do it? We learn as cross-examination continues that Belk spent a lot of time investigating, not his real name, Randy, that he actually met with and shared his opinions on the case with the previous prosecutors, the ones that chose not to prosecute Sandy. From the transcript, Belk. I went through everything that the defense had. I looked at and I read and I reviewed and I met with the prosecutors here at the DA's office who had this case before you and told them everything that I saw and told them what my opinion was. Barnett, and we still went forward, didn't we? Belk, surprisingly, yes. Barnett, really? Belk, yes. Let's not forget that aside from all this hostility, Barnett and Belk know each other. According to the transcript, they've known each other for 15 years, and Belka's testified in the past for Barnett. So at one time, she thought he was plenty qualified to render his opinion on cases in front of a jury. But she doesn't like him so much when his opinion differs so greatly from hers. Next, Barnett goes back over Sandy's medical records, where she didn't report having any seizures. And then she talks about the life insurance. Then back to the garage door and her changing stories in her interviews. And then finally, she goes back to Rossi. Belk was paid $10,000 and Rossi wasn't paid at all. And of course, Rossi has more training than Belk. And that concluded (laughs) cross-examination. On Redirect, Mac is basically allowing Belk to give full answers to the questions where he was limited on cross. He's able to explain rather than just giving the yeses and the noes. And then we get back into not his real name, Randy. Belk is trying to explain what he found in his criminal record, but Barnett objects. After a bench conference, the judge decides that she will not allow the jury to hear why Randy was arrested and bonded out just two days before Jim's murder. We'll get more into Randy in a future episode. There is a reason why Barnett didn't want the jury to hear about his record. He has a pattern of behavior that should most definitely have raised the eyebrows of Doucet and Corazal. And with that, Billy Belk was released from the witness stand. His opinions were strong and based on the evidence and his decades of experience investigating homicides. Billy Belk is convinced that Jim Melgar was murdered by home invaders and Sandy Melgar is a victim. But at the end of the day, the jury sided with Barnett and Rossi. Belk was ignored, and Sandy was convicted. And now it's time to look into some investigative leads that may very well have cracked this case wide open if Carrizal hadn't had blinders on. Next week, on truth and justice truth and justice is an nbi studios production and is distributed by wondery mike bussing is our executive producer and shane yoder is our sound engineer All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.